0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to That Triathlon Life Podcast. I'm Eric Lagerstrom.
1: I'm Paula hey. Finlay. I'm
0: Nick Goldston. This is our triathlon podcast where we uh, talk about <laughs> how things go in our life. We talk about a little bit of what's going on in the triathlon world. And I think most importantly, we take questions from everyone who listens and try to, I don't know, share a little bit of useful information as we go.
1: Right. Eric and I are both professional triathletes. Nick is a amateur triathlete, pretty fast one, and a professional musician is his real job uh which he's very good at as well. Oh wow. And yeah, we're just we're excited to be here. We just got back from a crazy whirlwind <laughs> trip. Wait. Let's think about the
2: last time that you guys were back at home with the podcast set up and I was here because it has been 2 months.
1: Yeah, it's so yeah. it's so crazy. As we were leaving home 2 months ago, I was it was hard to even imagine doing all the things we just did and then being back here. And in my mind, I like could not wait for it. I was like dreading the trip a little bit. It sounded too like too much time, too overwhelming to imagine doing all this. And miraculously, we have been around the world and back, and we are back in the office doing the podcast. So,
2: <laughs> so where, where have you been since you were there?
1: So we drove down to Eunuch, and we were in Santa Monica training for a little bit. And then we went to Race Oceanside. And then Eric went from Oceanside to Hawaii to film a film project. I drove to Flagstaff. Eric met me in Flagstaff. We trained at high altitude for a month. And then we left our dog and our van in Arizona, and we flew to Florida, and we raced St. Anthony's Triathlon. And then we flew from Florida to Europe and raced in Ibiza. Ibiza. I don't know how I call it Ibiza.
0: I think it it goes both ways.
2: (laughs) (laughs) th if you're fancy
1: I raced the PTO European Open Eric raced the World Cross Triathlon Championships in Ibiza and then we flew back to Arizona 20 hours got our van got our dog and drove 20 hours home and now we are home
0: (laughs) (laughs) and our bodies don't have any idea what day or time it is yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah. but like it's kind of crazy because miraculously um, we both raced pretty well over in Europe and um, we're kind of it could have gone both ways, but it went well. So we are very at least I am very relieved about that. Considering would you say I'm, of
2: the Oceanside race and the St. Anthony's race and Ibiza, you actually raced best in Spain?
1: Uh yeah, I would say Both I did. of you.
0: Both of you did. Yeah. It was this it was we trended positively through the whole trip.
1: Yeah. Got a little fitter, got a little uh, more race sharp and it's still early. We finished. We we you know Ibiza was early May, but we yeah. both had pretty decent races.
2: And do you feel like? I mean, this is, it's it's hard to tell, of course. But do you feel like the altitude training did its job?
0: It's hard to say. Um, we both felt pretty awful in Saint Anthony's. Paula still managed to win, got the job done. I definitely did not. But we both just really felt like we didn't have any top end, and we were kind of flat and tired. And it's, it's hard to say like definitely altitude or, you know, the time change or the fact that it was changed to a duathlon at the <laughs> last minute. But then when, by the time we got to Spain and we had an extra week and everything, I think bodies came around and it worked out pretty well. But it's, it's just like a strange thing. Cause we both sort of felt like we still didn't have like 10th, you know, on a scale of one to 10, we didn't have like 10th gear, but like nine just kind of felt like we could go forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was a little. The reason I was most nervous heading into St. Anthony's and Ibiza race um, after altitude is that I get a lot of my confidence heading into races from having really good workouts on the bike where my power numbers are really good and impressive to me and my run paces are good and impressive. And that gives me confidence that I'll be able to go have a good race. And when you're at altitude, all of those numbers are just deflated a little bit because you're so high. So you cannot train at the same power. You can't train at the same uh, pace on the run. And you just have to kind of accept that and have confidence that there's other benefits you're getting. And it's not all about pushing these crazy high numbers. So I didn't have a single workout in Flagstaff where I was like, wow, that was really good. I can go into these races and hold this power. It was just like, okay, that was kind of underwhelming. But because we're so high up, um, that was equivalent to doing X at sea level. So it kind of messes with your mind a bit and you just have to kind of let go of it and be okay with it. And uh, having our coach there helped a lot because he can kind of help guide us through what we should expect and what we should feel like when you're training that high up.
2: I'm going to connect some dots here. You raced really well at Daytona after not having put too much pressure on yourself and just kind of going out and race. Mm -hmm. You also raced really well here where I don't know if this is okay to say, but you told me that you were expecting to get like 15th place going into this race.
1: Oh, at European open. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you, well, you, I didn't you had know. low expectations
2: for yourself.
1: Yeah, and I
2: so don't,
0: I don't. You don't. You don't see a connection. I think the 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 mental space and the events leading up to these two races could not be more different. I agree. Right, I was right. the
1: biggest stress bomb of all time leading into this okay. European <laughs> okay, Open. Okay, I had, okay, got it. I had zero confidence in anything, and I, and the field was insane. Like yes. just world championship quality field. Probably even actually more competitive than St. Yeah. George World Championships last year. Um, and I just thought like I could have an okay race, like the kind of race I deserve for how I feel and come 15th or 20th or whatever it right. is. So just because the feel was so strong.
2: Right. So Okay. So I will um, not connect those dots actually. Yeah,
1: take I don't know all what back. dots you're trying to connect there, but it was not <laughs> about like being chill and relaxed.
0: It's, it's not that... Uh, it was, yeah, it was not like a, a less pressure, you know, because I'm feeling, thinking I could get 15th or yeah, like, it yeah. was just, wow. It was
1: like, wow, I'm expected to come third or top three, but right. I feel like I'm going to come last. That was my feelings. But got it. Uh, to summarize really quick, if you want to hear more about our St. Anthony's race, because we just raced so much, we can't do full recaps of everything on the podcast, but we did a pretty good recap on the vlog. So We talk about St. Anthony's there with a lot of actually kind of cool clips that our friend Samantha got. She traveled with us and um, got really good photos and video all week. But I guess we could dive a little bit into our races that we just had in Spain and then answer the questions. A lot of which actually that were sent in are related to the races and to travel and all these things. So um, that could be kind of the theme, hey?
2: Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So... Eric, do you want to start with your race? And you did not race the PTO European Open. You did something a little bit different, and it wasn't Xterra World. So do you want to describe what that race is in the first place?
1: And why you did it?
0: Yeah, so the the initial reason that I did it was we were trying to come up with some sort of justification why I should get a $2,000 plane ticket to accompany Paula to Ibiza that wasn't just so I could build her bike. because. Like the PTO does a great job with media coverage. They do a great job with, they have a full-time mechanic. They have a massage person that you can access. It's it's like kind of all the things that I would do are, are pretty taken care of. And with it, the travel being expensive, it didn't quite pencil out. But then Paula realized that because it was attached to the ITU World Championship Festival, uh, I could race the cross triathlon, which is the ITU's version of Xtera. Swim, mountain bike, trail run and there's like seventy five hundred dollars to win it and the prize money didn't drop off super hard so I was like all right i mean like i could go and i if i get as long as i get in the like the top five ish it kind of pencils out and we can go together and have an experience it'll be fun and
1: it was it was not even really about the prize money like um i think the appeal was that it's kind of fun as well like eric really oh, likes sure. racing off-road it was a fairly short distance race it was like It took 90 minutes total. So it wasn't like this huge taxing five or four hour race. And it was the day before my race. So you could just...
0: To be clear, like I would not have done the ITU long course world. Like... Too long. It it was, this happens to be a thing that I'm very interested in and love doing. And there's a little bit of financial incentive and Paul is going. So it was like a a perfect suite of things. And, but yeah, like Paul said, ultimately it just sounded really cool. Yeah,
2: and... The, the the fact that it was the day before is very good because you historically much better don't erase great the day after Paula races because you're so emotionally spent.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, that that was a very very cool thing. Um, it was actually on like the opposite eye side of the island, which was a little bit logistically complicated. I had to drive over and back each day basically to go, like go see the course and go to the race briefing and stuff, but ended up being totally fine. And I like really got the chance to brush up on my manual. Nice. stick shift driving skills.
1: It's a very small island though. I mean, for in our race we almost went to the other side and back four times. Yeah. It's very small.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's like that's
0: 20k. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> From like tip to tip uh, sideways it's like 20k. Yeah. Um but yeah, anyway, it's uh the, the distances were a 1k swim, like a 21k mountain bike ride and a 6k run. And how much climbing on those mountain biking and and running portions? I want to say the run had 100 meters in it. The mountain bike had like 300 meters. And then the swim has no elevation. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank God. Uh, (laughs) Which is not, it doesn't
1: sound like a ton, Nick, but it's a pretty short distance. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a ton. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very, it was very punchy. Uh, The run was not like wildly hilly. It was Definitely, definitely not flat, but it's just very punchy. Like you're you're getting all of these like hundred meters or the three hundred meters on the bike, like in these really steep bursts at just crazy, crazy high power because you're going so fast because it's so such a short race. So anyway, like I was saying, it's it's like one and a half, it's like seventy five percent the length of a of an extra, um, and was just so so fun.
2: Do you feel like you? the gear was right, the wetsuit, the bike, the shoes, were they right for the race?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, it it ended up being a wetsuit swim, which I was a little bit surprised by. The day before the race, it was they measured the water temperature at like 20.3, which is over. The, the wetsuit cutoff is 20. And then of course, one hour before the race, they measured it 19.7 and it ended up being a wetsuit race. So we're there like like underneath this cold shower, trying to get cold water into our wetsuit so we don't overheat in the twenty-five degrees Celsius oh,
2: right, right, air right.
0: temperature. Right. Getting ready for this race, and I think I definitely would have had a little bit better swim relative to my competitors if it had been a non-wetsuit swim. Um, the Xterra off-road triathlon scene is certainly not known for its swim ability. <laughs> right, um, they're good, but there's, it's just they're not quite at the level of like ITU short course athletes or like a seventy-point-three world's front pack um but i i got out of the water in like in the lead group of 3 like 5 seconds back of the leader or whatever and then just like went as hard as i could i went as hard as i possibly could the first like 5 minutes of this bike and still got just like completely rolled up by the french team just crazy I was telling you, yeah, you like, you come out of transition, you kind of do this like 400 meter road climb that's just gradual to, and you're like, while you're putting on your shoes and you get on a dirt road for a couple minutes and then you immediately hit this pretty steep, loose climb and then you pop out onto a road. And this road that you pop out onto is like 8%. And I'm going up this 8% climb there, having not completely gotten caught by everybody yet. And I'm going. I looked down, I saw 497 watts seated on my mountain Jesus. bike. Jesus. And these two French guys just like, just like go riding right by right, me. Right by. Just right by me, dude. It was crazy. They must have been, I mean, maybe they were doing the same watts as me, but They're they weigh 30 pounds yeah. less. <laughs> right, I, I right, don't right. know. But yeah, it was it was really impressive. So I managed to like get on their wheels and make it over the top of the climb. And then the interesting thing was they just like chilled. As soon as we got yeah. up the climb, they kind of all looked around and it was like, all right, that happened and now we're good. And I'm just like, oh no, like we are not letting anybody else catch right. on to this group. We got to go. So I just like slingshotted by them and just went into like 70.3 TT mode on this little road section. And I actually ended up leading the whole first lap of the bike as two 10K, two laps, 10K each lap. Um, and then the second time up that really steep, loose climb, they just like kind of made another move but it, it was pretty it became pretty apparent to me that the 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 dynamic here is like crazy 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 on the uphills and then you just you recover on the downhills or anything that's not a crazy single track uphill.
2: Right. Yeah, that seems to be the MO in mountain biking in general, right? Is like especially For sure. the beginning. It's like get ahead. Whatever it takes to get ahead because it's so challenging to pass then during yeah. the race. Yeah.
1: I was watching the live um just the tracker updates that were, like, twice per lap. And I saw Eric leading the whole first lap, and then it was, like, a minute gap on the second lap. And I thought, for sure, something mechanical had happened. But I think it is just these guys put these big surges in. And if I think... You had trained more specifically for this. You may have been able to hold with that, but it it is a cool thing that you came back and you're like, oh, I want to do more of these races. I know now what I need to work on. And it is different kind of training than 70.3 specific training, which is what we've been doing. So I think uh, it was, from my perspective, a good learning opportunity to race the best off-road guys and See what their strengths are to try to match yours to that.
2: And then, was did the run feel mostly like this, like what you expected? Because the bike seemed like it was a bit of a surprise how much they were pulling up those hills. But
0: I mean, I kind of, I knew that was going to be the case, but I felt really good, and they were still right, like right. really cranking. Um, so I was kind of I was kind of assuming that I would feel like pretty good, and that would happen. But to feel re- like I felt pretty good on the day. Um, and to still be getting dropped miserably on that second lap was was really impressive. Um, which and I think Paul is right. I think if I go to into the next few months and just like the build up to Xterra Worlds and really hit some more like five by two minutes or eight by two minutes uphill, whatever you know, I'll talk to Paulo, my coach, about it. Um, rather than three by twenty minutes, you know, at seventy point three pace, I think I'll be able to like be able to continue to sustain those high-level surges in the second, you know, 30 minutes of the mountain bike. And then the run was, yeah, pretty much what I expected. Right. Not a surge. I mean, I wasn't wasn't in a pack at that point. For the most part, it it had then broken up and I could see Ruben Rizafa. He was like 30 seconds ahead of me. I ended up running like maybe 15 seconds faster than him, but I couldn't quite catch him. And there certainly kind of feels like a little bit of an absolute limit that you're able to hit while running because you have to run down technical things. And then, yeah, you can sprint up the hills as much as you can, but you still have to be able to like turn a corner really fast and do these, do this like technical moves. You know, it's not purely a fitness thing. But the same thing. I just, I'll do a little bit more hill running, I think is the biggest thing. And then I already like to run trails anyway.
1: It's crazy to think how different that is from. The kind of racing we did in the European Open, and how many athletes could do that crossover from the road side to the exterior side? I no, don't think not, there's not many, many, so no, it's it's pretty impressive to be able to jump from one to the other and have the skills to do it. I I think on the women's side, like probably only Heather Jackson could do that, <laughs> and maybe yeah. Eric and I don't know. There's a couple more guys who probably could do it, but
0: yeah, I think that there's I think probably some athletes from Paula's race could complete it, but being at, like I just I can't I can't impress how fast these guys are at like putting out 400 watts while like scrambling up and over roots and rocks on this like eight to ten percent trail and turning at the same time like it's it's when I would finish like a hard mountain bike like that like my entire body is tired I can't swim well the next day just because right. of how physical it is with y- you're moving everything that you've got
2: yeah that's that's a I, that excites me. That makes me want to do
0: a race like that. It's it's super fun, man. It's oh,
1: really, It makes me your, never want to. <laughs>
0: yeah. all of your senses are engaged, and that's. I think that's what I, I'm a, a little bit searching for these days in in sport is something where my all of my focus is not necessarily on okay, can I do 307 instead yeah, yeah, of 305, yeah, yeah. right, and I hurt right. and I can feel I'm like acutely aware of every burning sensation in each muscle versus like i just can get lost in the in the excitement of of not falling over.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And Paula, you basically had you had to have the exact opposite. Exactly what Eric is saying, he didn't have to worry about it. it's like nose to the grindstone. How can i yeah. sustain this power this whole time? How can i uh, how can i sustain this run?
1: A little bit, but in a race of that level that i just did, it's it is a little more tactical on the bike. There are more people around that are also really strong. So it's less about just like putting out as much watts as you can for two hours. But yeah, totally different race than what Eric did, just in terms of the technical skills and everything. Um, but he got back from his race and he was in a good mood. And that's kind of all I could have asked for. I was going to ask
2: and, you, like, did that change your race dynamic in your mind? You're like, okay, no. Eric's happy. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm just going to go race tomorrow.
1: Not really. I think Eric was, he was pretty low stress about the whole thing. It could have gone well. It could have gone bad. I think he would have been okay with it just because it was such a kind of not random thing, but it was uh, a more of a last minute thing that he decided to do. And the, the real pressure was on me. I feel like to live up to the expectations that were built up and, uh, Win money at this race because we'd spent so much to get over there. Um, But no, he got back and he was in a good mood. He was excited about Xterra and off road and wants to do more of it. And um, that was great. And it took a little bit of pressure off me, I guess. But really, I was just focused the first or the whole day on like going to our race meeting and doing my pre race workouts and then following the tracker for his race. And then he was back by 2 p.m. So it was all. Very fast and pre-race day, I'm always crazy nervous. Don't want to race the next day. Like I I mean, I get in that mindset. And so whether he raced or not, I think I was gonna be like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So um it was kind of nice that he could go do his own thing the day before and not be in my bubble of nerves and stress all day. Did, you know, did
2: you at all transfer to a, a state of like, okay, no, I'm gonna race. I got this, or did that never happen uh, until no, you were never, in the race?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and confirm that never even happened. That, even uh, in yeah. the race,
1: that didn't happen. Actually, while yeah. I was on the bike, I had these thoughts of like, okay, this is going better than I thought. I think no matter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, and this great. was, I was like, okay, well, even
1: if I run like shit, I still, Eric will be proud of how I
2: biked. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs>
0: That's right. I, I, just, I feel like this is a good moment to say that I was I was having a funny conversation with another female pro post-race and just to like make it so that everybody understands that Paula's not completely all by herself in this. This female pro was telling me about how midway through the bike they were thinking all they want to do is just have a baby. Yeah.
1: <laughs> just anything I just want to quit this. immediately just and go me have the a pain baby. pain of
2: childbirth yeah. over this race right now.
1: Or no, just like I want to retire. Yeah. But i I never felt really in this race that I wanted to quit triathlon, which is which
2: is, oh, which is different new which than is how rare. I felt yeah
1: in uh oceanside and Saint Anthony's uh, And yeah, I was thinking funny. like this could be my last race ever, but yeah. i there were a couple factors, and the the swim actually it was very choppy, but it felt very easy, and I don't know if that's a um
2: altitude thing,
1: an altitude thing maybe, mm-hmm. and Also, these DeBoer wetsuits are so floaty that you just like almost can't kick in them. It's a very weird feeling. So it's almost like I'm just doing pull. My heart rate is so low and... I wasn't in the fastest swim pack, but because it was so hectic and wavy, I kind of just found myself around like Ellie and Ashley Gentle. And I just kind of decided to stick there and stay there. And although my effort wasn't high, I wasn't going to try to go around them. It's not like I'm fast enough to bridge a gap up to Holly. So I'm like, just be patient. I'm with some good, pretty good swimmers. And this will be a good little pack to come out of the water with. So very relaxed on the swim, got on the bike and... Paulo had said to me the day before, my coach, like a lot of these really, really competitive races will come down to the run. So try to be a bit tactical on the bike and don't just go to the front and try to pull everyone up to the front of the race. So I was super aware of that. And what helped a lot, I think, in this race, keeping it A, fair and B, engaging, is the race ranger technology that we used. And I think there's a question about this later in the podcast, yeah, but essentially is, yeah. we all had these devices put on our bikes where um, they they have lights on them and you have one on your fork and one on your seat post. And if you get within 20 meters of the rider ahead of you, it blinks red. If you're at 22 meters, it's blue. And if you're at 25, it's orange. So as long as you're not in the red zone, you're at the legal distance. So this was like a really good visual cue for everyone to keep the legal distance, including me, because sometimes it's hard to see what 20 meters looks like.
0: Yeah. For me, it's like one of the main things that stresses me out the night before a race is thinking about like, man, how do I know for sure that I'm at the legal distance and somebody can't slot in front of me and I'm not going to get a penalty. And so it's like so hard to like really know when your heart rates that high and be confident in it. And this like takes that away a lot.
2: Eric, this happens to you it has happened to you multiple times in big races where people have slotted in in front of you and yeah. questionable yeah. legality of that. So this yeah. would really fix that.
0: Yeah, totally. And I I feel like part of that's because I probably, when I'm sitting at, when you I leave think a I'm little, sitting- leave too much room. Yeah, I leave like just one meter more than I absolutely could because I'd rather play it safe and then that gets capitalized on. So yeah. anyway, go ahead, Paula.
1: Yeah, Lucy was like two minutes ahead of- um, me out of the water. And in the first lap of the bike, of which there were four laps, I think I pulled a minute on her. And then I caught a group of like the Holly and the Fenella group um, and kind of just stayed with them for a little bit, thinking about this tacticalness that I wanted to be aware of so that I didn't fry myself for the run. But if I could go back in time, I think I would have just kept riding that hard because after I caught that group and led that group for a lot of it, but also kind of sat in a little bit. Um, The gap kind of stayed the same to Lucy. So I closed it so much and then it stayed the same. So um, going back in time, I think I would like have a little more confidence in my power and my ability to ride pretty hard and try to catch her. But... Yeah, the race ranger did really change the dynamics because people would come around me, and I'd have to completely let off the gas because the thing her there thing would be blinking red until it got to the zone where I was outside of the twenty meters, and then it would be a huge surge to repass them. So, I, I mean that's just the nature of these races, and the um, yeah, it's it there is a tactical part of it as well.
2: So I just remember in Oceanside, like part of the lesson we learned for you was to not. <laughs> pull everyone Toe along everyone on the yeah, bike. Yeah. Right. So I, I like that you at least tried to put that into action yeah. and, and, and I mean, it's, at least you didn't do that.
0: Right. And you did run well. I mean, you ran at least very consistently. I, I don't think like, yeah, just from what you said, I don't think you were like necessarily super stoked on the, on the pace, but you looked very consistent the whole day, no yeah. blow up. And it sounds like you did weren't in a super negative uncomfortable space necessarily. Yeah,
1: I was never at the never in an uncomfortable space for the entire race, which, That's which is good, I guess. That's it might just be like a great. an altitude thing, or maybe I didn't push as hard as I could have and should have. But you have to understand my headspace before this race was so negative and so doubting of what I could do that I was maybe a bit complacent when things were going okay. Like, okay, let's just stick with this. This is yeah. <laughs> way better than you thought you were do- going to be able to do. So I uh, I think as the season goes on and I get more confident, I, like, I feel like I belong up in these races and I have some more experience with the race, like all these things. I'll be like, okay, I belong at the front and just, it, it'll be a different headspace. It'll be a different headspace.
2: It's so crazy to hear you say this, and I feel like it's good for age groupers who listen to this podcast to hear this. Paula Finley ranked, at the time, third in the world. Do I belong here? Should I be doing this? We all have these things, and it, it that never goes away. Yeah. I think oh. it, there's, it's a bit of in impostor your head syndrome. all the time. Yeah. Yes, it's in your head all the time. Yeah, It's, it's just amazing to hear you guys say it too.
1: I what's, think- what's crazy about, one more thing about Race Ranger, is that when you see what 20 meters looks like, What it actually is, because we rode at 20 meters the whole time, it is absolutely f***ing insane that Ironman is 12 meters. Because that's like half. And 20 meters is not even that much. Like, we're still getting a draft effect, and you see it in the watts. Like, someone comes around me, I'm 20 meters behind, my watts are dropping down. So, no wonder there's these giant packs in Ironman. 12 meters is nothing. 12 meters is... You're putting out way, way, way less. How much less would
2: you say? Does it, does it feel like at your, at the pro women's speed
1: for the 12 meters?
2: Yeah. No, for 20. For 20. So the Over PTO, 20, 20, meters. 20 meters. How many watts do you think you're saving? 20? I
1: don't know.
0: It's so hard because you never know if somebody like passes you and gets to the And front, then slows down. And they need to slow down because they're tired. Which happens every
1: time.
2: Yeah. But do you have like a, uh, like if you had to guess for just for the listeners to give them an idea. And obviously the listeners aren't going as fast as you guys are going. So that's going to be less. Maybe like
1: but... 10 or 15 or 20 okay. watts. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But it, it, it changed like my average watts for the last three laps when I was kind of playing in the pack a little bit were so low because there was so much time where I'd see a blinking red and I'd have to completely ease off and be at zero watts. So the average power just dropped so significantly because the consistency of just putting down power is not there. So Lucy riding very consistently at the front would have not had to worry about all this and just had like a lot better overall power. But um, yeah, that's, it's just like, learning as we go in these big yeah. competitive oh fields. i think
2: it's great i love the idea because we hear about this all the time and like the athletes like it the fans are gonna like it because we hate seeing people get drafting penalties but we hate seeing people draft even more you know
1: yeah and the refs were just using it as like a guide they could have given out penalties um regardless of what th- what the race rangers said but um right yeah, was- that's the
0: thing it still takes a referee to Make that call. Make
1: the call. Yeah, like, yeah. The
0: penalties think, aren't
2: automatic, right? The refs no, get the data have to
0: and they make decide the call. that exactly. your red light was blinking for long enough to necessitate a penalty yeah. and intentional cheating.
2: Yeah. yeah, cool. And then, so you you feel like you conserved some energy, maybe too much, on the bike, yeah. and then had the run go.
1: The run was like fine. It was a lot of laps. It was six laps. So the crowd was crazy. It was a super cool venue. I think that the, the the lapping nature of it made it go by quickly because you just had people around you all the time cheering, which doesn't happen a lot in races where you're doing too big out and backs and you hardly see anyone and you're kind of just in your own head. So I really like that part of it, but the running and this level of racing is just getting so so fast. Like I can have a a pretty good run and still be 4 minutes slower than the best runners out there. So yeah, it's just, I was, again, maybe a bit too complacent. Wasn't, I was like, okay, this is fine. I'm in fifth. Great. I'll be happy with fifth. And I wasn't like racing for fourth or anything. Like maybe that was a bad mindset to be in, but because I know how everyone races and how fast they are, I could kind of like calculate as I was going, okay, I'm going to catch this person, but then Emma's going to catch me and I just have to hold off Tamara and I'll be fifth. So I kind of was yeah. just like playing it out of my head as it was going. And that ended up being how it finished so um yeah i don't know tamra was chasing me down on the last lap she got within like 15 seconds of me which oh that's not a nice feeling it happened at indian wells yeah Yeah. (laughs) there's not much you can do to hold her off i'm like this is as fast as i can go right now (laughs) but um
2: eric talked about this last year a couple of times with like going to that well like how many times can you go to that well and really Mm -hmm. dig deep and scrape the bottom for every last thing that you got? And I feel like if it's a world championship event or something, like that's one thing. But when it's May, like, I don't know if it, is it really worth it to like squeeze out every drop to just like then hate it and spend the next six weeks mentally recovering from what that effort felt like? I I'm not sure. I mean.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I like physically could have gone a ton deeper than I did just based on my physiological limitations, but I did, uh, I didn't finish that race and think, Oh, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Right. You know, the, which the I've, that I've heard before. you say a couple <laughs> times. Yeah. So I could have, it must've been like somewhat controlled. Well, I just kind of wanted
2: to hear your main takeaway from you both from this race. It feels, seems like Eric, is it kind of like those short efforts?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Eric's I... excited for Xtero worlds, which, uh,
0: my main takeaway is that I'm, I was feeling a little bit in a a mode um, coming out after Oceanside and after St. Anthony's a bit of like, man, I just cannot fathom really right now going and doing a bunch of time trial bike efforts to get ready for I'm not really sure what. I can't really get that excited about any of the races that are coming up with the exception of Alcatraz. Um, And now after doing that, I'm like extremely excited to go train. And I feel like I have, kind of know what I need to do. And I have this direction and purpose. And that's like a very exciting feeling for me. That's right the now. best.
2: Yeah. That's yeah. the best. And Paula, do you feel like, do you like, I mean, I, you kind of already said this, but I'm curious about the bike tactics stuff. I feel like that was kind of like the main takeaway from Oceanside among other things, actually. But do you feel like, <laughs> is there one thing that you, that you feel like you could tell yourself like that you actually are better at now at racing or, or at least in, in the, timeline of this year you feel more confident about?
1: Um, I think that I, if I mirror how I'm doing now and how I felt at this race to last year at this time, it's fairly comparable. Like I had a not great Oceanside. I won St. Anthony's, but it wasn't super fit. And then I had an okay Chattanooga race. So I think that like racing in May and then trying to decide how your rest of your season's going to go based on this time of year is not really fair. And I ended up having a, a great summer. So I feel like I'm on track for that if I just can stay healthy. And I didn't have a disastrous race in, in, uh, in Europe. And it was a fear mostly because of how much we'd invested time-wise and financially to get there. And it's a huge trip, like so much traveling and a lot of stress, a lot of um, mental energy that goes into performing on that stage and you can't tap into that too often in the year it's just too stressful and maybe it's just maybe i'm one of the, the only ones that feels that like in a draining way the the amount of hype that you need to have to get ready for that type of a race
0: based on the people that i talk to you're not the I'm only not one i'm not the only one no, <laughs> yeah, a lot of no no but
1: um i don't i don't think that because I didn't podium at PTO European Open in May or because I didn't win it, it doesn't mean that I'm not in a good spot right now. I think that I'm appropriately building my fitness and getting a little bit better every race. And even when I didn't feel my absolute best, I could still be in the mix at a race of that caliber. So that's um, that's nice. That's I, a nice feeling.
0: I think a big takeaway that we were discussing which doesn't I don't feel like we have a great solution for it is actually the mental strain not of the race itself and going to the well there but the mental strain of the month of preparation for an event of that nature where you feel like it's going to be a world championship field it's going to take your best day to have a result that you're proud of and like our time in flagstaff was quite stressful for that reason and like rightfully so like if I'd been towing the line like Paula was at that sort of an event, I would have been completely stressed and feeling like every workout needed to be the best workout possible. And like, ideally ideal situation, we would say, no, we're just not going to do the European open. It's a little too early for us to feel like totally ready and good about it and have all the necessary things. We want to just focus on 70.3 worlds and the U S open, and we'll put all our eggs in that basket. And, uh, you know, the month before those won't be quite as stressful because we'll feel like it's good timing but when there's a, a race of this caliber and the PTO points matter and the prize money matter, matters, you feel like you have to show up to these. And I think that's, you know, like I said, i spent a lot of time talking to other athletes and significant others of other athletes. And that's like a hard thing that we're staring at right now is how do you use those matches that you have to burn when it feels like you have to go to all of these races to be relevant and to have the PTO points and everything.
1: Yeah. Looking at the points now though, I don't regret going. I think they were fairly distributed and I think I got like 92 points for the European Open race, which yeah. is more points than I got for second at 70.3 worlds last year. So I think it was worth the trip. Money wise, I mean, the, the, the prize purse difference from last year is quite significantly less. So that didn't pencil out as well, but
0: um, totally. I think it was it was worth it in a lot of aspects, but yeah. just like the question comes up, like is that mentally sustainable to do that? Yeah, four yeah. times a year.
1: I agree, and and it's it's ultimately up to me to be more chill about it and to not have it. Like flight stuff, there were so many factors. Just I'm away from home in an un, unusual environment at altitude. There were a lot of things that made me not happy there so that I feel like that was just like a disaster waiting to happen when I eventually would go to race but somehow I made it work and it it does take a lot of courage I think to and a lot of athletes did this to train for that, a race like that and not take the easy way and go to St. George 70.3 which would have been a 4-hour drive and um yeah packing up and going to Europe is is a lot bigger of a production for a race that you don't feel totally ready for but I think that we needed to do it, and it was the good, the right thing to do. And it ended up, we ended up racing well, which is like the icing on the cake. But there's a lot of positives that came out of it. Yeah,
2: agree. And the the using the word courage there, I really like that because I think a lot of athletes we think of like, oh, let's qualify for world championships or whatever. We'll pick a race that suits my strengths and that's close and that maybe the fastest people won't be at. Yeah,
1: it's
2: like this is the exact opposite of that. It's yeah, like, it's like <laughs> Everyone... crazy, crazy
1: field. Yeah, everyone keeps saying in all the interviews, like, especially the men, they're like, oh, I love this. I love racing the best athletes in the world. It's just, you can see where you're at and that's what I live for. I just love racing the best. And it's like, yeah, we all kind of do, but also we We all kind of want to win. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if that's like my favorite thing ever, racing all the best athletes in the world every single time I go race. But it definitely keeps you humble. (laughs)
2: Yeah, right. Um, Okay, first question here is from Brad, and it's related. Hi, TTL. Congratulations on your races in Ibiza. While watching the European Open, I noticed all of the racers had some sort of device under or in your kits on your upper back. Emma Pallant Brown even had it taped to her skin since she was wearing a swimsuit instead of a full tri-kit. Is it some sort of transponder to track where you're at on course? It seemed quite bulky and large. Also, if it hasn't been asked already, how was your first race with the race ranger? Eric, I hope your V-shaped sunburn is healing well. Ouch. Take care, <laughs> Brad. So yeah, what, what is Brad talking about?
1: Yeah, so for these, the, the PTO loves the broadcast. They're all about um, making it an engaging visual experience where the watchers can like learn about the sport and all the athletes and so part of that is having these GPS trackers in our suits. So we all had to bring our kits um, to the PTO three days early, and they actually sewed a pocket into each kit pretty well, actually. They like matched the, f- the color of the thread and everything as best they could and uh, put these GPS trackers in our backs, which were about the size of a credit card and maybe the width of an iPhone. So not small, but... I couldn't feel them too much. The The most annoying thing was actually in a wetsuit because it kind of added this bulk to your upper back where you could definitely feel it when the zipper right where was where the up. zipper is, yeah. Yeah, but while I was racing, I didn't even notice it. And we also actually had to wear heart rate straps on our arms, like the polar um, oh, yeah, yeah. heart rate sensors. And so we felt like a little bit like walking you know gadgets we had all these things strapped to us and the race rangers on our bikes and it's all for you know we're all equalized because everybody has to do it so it's not like a disadvantage to anyone to have these things on but um i actually don't know how the broadcast was because i didn't watch it but if all these things were actually useful and enhanced the visual experience (laughs) but hopefully they did
0: i don't recall i didn't watch all of it because i was there in person and cheering and whatever, but I don't. In the bits that we watched while we were waiting for you to come around each time on the laps on the bikes, I don't remember them referencing. Oh, Lucy's at heart rate one forty six. But the data was there <laughs> the data on the was screen. there.
1: Okay, okay. Eventually, they want to have like power and yeah, all these different
2: metrics. I like that. Like to me, as a as a triathlete and a fan of pro triathlon, I'm I would be extremely interested and engaged to see power numbers and like live pace data from a run. Yep. That, yeah, I, I think mean, that's I what they want to do. That's exciting.
1: Eventually, I think they also like who's fastest on course at the moment. Yeah. And how quickly are they catching the lead and all of these cool things that like in a F1 race, you can kind of see they all did those data ha- points. They
2: did have that like when Ditlev was really going really fast, they were showing how fast yeah. he was going compared to Christian. And it was kind of cool okay. to see to See that it was like, oh wow, yeah, they yeah. are moving really. And is really that quick.
1: I wonder if all that information was being recorded with the GPS trackers?
2: Yeah, it, it was like to the decimal point, so I think it was using the GPS trackers.
1: Okay, versus in Ironman races, they're like taking one checkpoint and another and like averaging yes, it, and no, it's always no. wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, so wrong. It's like, oh, he averaged 40 miles an hour for this checkpoint and 13 for the next yeah, one. It's yeah. like, okay, <laughs> it's I don't think accurate. so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm not I like the tracker and I like the Race Ranger like we talked about. So yeah. yeah. All good things.
2: Cool. Um okay. Next question here is from Olman. Hello, TTL fam. Congrats on those extraordinary performances on the weekend. PTA European Open was fantastic. Paula crushed that bike course. The very competitive races this weekend made me think. How do you guys choose your races? I mean, very competitive races are super exciting for the fans and age groupers, but the probabilities to win and have cash prizes are lower, which means more effort on your part. And not-so-competitive racers are not exciting for fans, but is almost certain that you will have a podium and cash prize. So what do you prefer? Competitive races with fewer possibilities of cash prizes or races <laughs> with almost pass. guaranteed prizes? Um, Pura Vida from Costa Rica, Alman. So we obviously we talked about this, but...
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um I, like we, we talk about financials and, and like, you know, hopefully a big, a trip of a race, you know, like you don't go into the, the red as a result of it. And, you know, being a slightly intelligent with our uh, decision-making there. But like, for me anyway, more and more, I'm motivated to pick races based on like courses or venues that really interest me. And then I like kind of make sure that It's not going to be a huge financial loss, you know, if I get fourth place. But I'd say like that's kind of like my counter answer is almost just like at this point in our lives, like we have fantastic sponsors and we don't have to stress about not being able to pay the bills if we don't make money at a race. And it's almost more like. What's a cool race to go to for me? Because I'm not part of the PTO tour, that is really exciting. That I think I could have a good experience at, and ideally, that also has a higher likelihood than not of you know breaking even.
1: Yeah.
2: Would the with the exception to that maybe be like world championship races where you're like, eh, maybe that's not the most fun, but I probably should do that. Or even then, are you like, eh, it's
0: not fun. I'm not doing it. Um, well, there are definitely some races out there that I'm like, absolutely not. No way. Would not do it. Doesn't matter how much money is there. Um, Maybe it's like a hot race or something. Like, I th- kind of feel like that would be way about Kona and hopefully that doesn't bum anybody out too much. I'm like, man, I just... The, the pathway to me having a good race there and you can define that by the prize or just by personal feeling of performance is so low, not going to risk it. It's um, not worth it, but...
1: <clears throat> I think a lot of the... It's not just... The prize money or the prestige or whatever, winning or not winning at these races, I think a lot of it is also the exposure and the content and all the things that we get at this at the races that we go to. So going to the PTO European race, for example, um, yes, you're not guaranteed to win. You're far from guaranteed to win. You're far from guaranteed to make your money back. But I think the all the things that we got out of it by going there, like seeing the industry people getting the PTO media stuff, having Eric filming, getting photos, doing the whole experience and sharing that is valuable to our sponsors as well, which is why we have great sponsors and don't have to worry about prize money as much. So it's it's kind of a full circle effect here. And there's more to it than just racing and winning. It's uh, Even in Oceanside, there were so many upsides to that race, even though we both didn't race necessarily well. It was um, a really positive thing to be at overall so that comes into consideration as well when we're deciding between one or one of the other a lot of the time yeah
2: I like that that's that's kind of the answer I was hoping you would say it's like you know you do it because it's fun and because it's good for you as a total athlete not just like this one has more money go to this one or whatever it is
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah the prize money is one factor
2: Uh, Next question here is from John. Congrats on all the great racing, Paul, Eric, and Nick. Love you all. Quick question regarding tire pressure. I'm racing at Fort DeSoto
0: in Florida. (laughs) This is a funny question. 20 PSI.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Same course you guys race for couples. Try. I'll be running the Schwalbe Pro TTs and was wondering what pressure I should run. If you can remember, the bike course is crazy rough. Yes, I remember that too. It is crazy rough. It's so
1: bumpy. It's so
2: bumpy. Thanks for everything you do, John.
1: But if you're just looking at it or riding in a car, it's not really noticeable. It's almost just like the pavement is undulating.
0: It's so wild. It's so wild. You're you're riding along and you're like, I must be in the roughest part of the road. I'm going to move three inches to the left. Yeah. And, you, and you go over there and like, nope, that's so not rough. it. I'm going to so move rough. over a little bit more, move back. And you're just like fishing around trying to find the smooth spot and you never find it. <laughs> uh, but... If you're running, uh, if you're running like we're running, like eight five eight NSWs or 454s, five fours, like a wide tire, a wide rim was a twenty eight c tire, and you don't weigh over like two hundred and thirty pounds, like get as close to sixty psi as you can. Just like the lower you can go, the better to try to smooth some of that out. And there's nothing there that you would really be worried about a pinch flat either. So it's it's really just like try to make your tires be. But this is where if you have full suspension for you, this is
1: for if you have uh, tubeless.
0: Yes, yes. I think that's what he's. I'm just assuming that you have tubeless. Okay. If you don't have tubeless, then 80s maybe, low 80s. I'll just
2: I'll just say also that SRAM. You can go on their website, SRAM.com. It, just Google SRAM tire pressure calculator, and you can put in all your but your weight, weight of your bicycle, the kind of tires they are, the width of your wheel, the width of the tires, and it'll spit out recommended starting points for tire pressure. And the reason I say this is because I think people yeah. will be shocked at how much lower they are than what they probably do. For me, for the 28s, it was like 61 and 65 for for front and rear. And I feel like people, people think 80 is low. It wasn't even the hookless because you can put in the clincher type of tubeless, and it's still that low. The hookless oh. is even lower.
0: Wait. Well, there you yeah.
2: go. Yeah. Cool. Um, Okay, next question here is from Simon. I have a gear-related question. With summer coming up, I'm thinking of upgrading my swimming equipment. I will be doing three Olympic distances with open water swims and would like to have your opinion on whether I should go for a swim skin or a classic wetsuit. I've been a swimmer professionally. I don't even know that was a thing. So the beginner wetsuits are off the table. Are you Michael Phelps? Who, yeah, what's a professional swimmer? What does I that can- even mean? <laughs> um, I've been a uh, swimmer professionally, so the beginner wetsuits are off the table, and wetsuits get very pricey really fast. Best wishes from Germany and good luck uh, for Ibiza, Simon.
0: What is off the table?
2: Um, uh, a cheap wetsuit. Because oh, what
0: the, the, right, right.
2: The, his his thought process is I used to be a professional swimmer so I don't want anything but something that's high quality so I don't want of a course. beginner wetsuit
1: right yeah I think that the the question when you're thinking about a swim skin versus a wetsuit is not like a swim skin or a wetsuit it's if the swim is wetsuit legal you wear a wetsuit one hundred percent of the time and if time. the swim is not wetsuit legal you wear a swim skin because yep. both are the fastest options and if you if it's a wetsuit legal swim and you're in a swim skin. You're gonna be at a huge disadvantage. Although maybe if you are a professional swimmer, you probably still be first out of the water. Yeah, you'll still be fine.
0: (laughs) You need to be more first out of the water.
1: Yeah, yeah. No,
0: a cheap wetsuit is still
1: way
2: faster than the best swim skin. It's not close. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And and are actually um, good good wetsuits are getting more affordable. I think, and so many companies now are just making are making wetsuits across the board that I think you could find maybe even a good quality used one, like gently used from a professional or something. Um, But the swim skins is an interesting question. A lot of people don't understand the point of them and the fabric on them is actually fast. So there is a speed advantage, but it's also just creating this like sausage casing for if you have pockets on your tri-kit or a looser tri-kit, it just kind of sucks everything together. And it's, they're really easy to pull off. Uh, They last kind of forever. Like you're not going to, use them more than just racing. You don't need to train in it, but they are for sure a fast option if it's not a wetsuit legal swim. And more often than not for Ironman races, it's wetsuit legal because the cutoff is so high. But um, for things like Kona or a really, really hot race, the swim skin's the way to go. When's the last time you guys tried a cheap wetsuit?
0: Blue 70 actually sent me one of their mid-range wetsuits to try out and just give feedback on. And I honestly was really impressed with it. I think it's like yeah. a lot of things out there where uh, their top end wetsuit from four years ago is probably, you know, trickled down all that technology into the yep. current midday, mid range wetsuit. So,
1: yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to like flexibility in the shoulders and different things like that, where you get more, a little more advanced in the more expensive suits, Yeah, but they're all floaty neoprene. Yes. <laughs> they are, they're like them. a cork. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, okay, next question here. This should be a fast one, uh, and you'll see why. Hello, team. Thanks for everything you do for the sport and for keeping us entertained. Quick one for the boys so Paula won't start yelling, boring. Yes or no, do you ever use a gimbal or just trust 100% on the built-in stabilization in the new GoPro models? Big thank you, Manuel.
0: So do we ever use a gimbal with the GoPro?
2: Specifically with the GoPro. Because obviously we love the gimbal with our actual cameras.
0: yeah. Um, I'm very intrigued too. I have had a GoPro gimbal before. It is now, uh, no longer with us. The, yeah, the in-camera stabilization is really, really good. The thing that we have discovered, which is getting kind of deep, is that if you want to put an ND filter on the front of the GoPros, that sort of breaks down their ability to stabilize a little bit. In which case, then it might be nice to counteract that with the gimbal.
2: The thing is that the, the thing we like so much about the GoPro is that it's so small and easily mountable. And the gimbal then Actually. starts to fight against the whole point yeah. of using the GoPro. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you lose I would lose agree, that... and
1: I don't even know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you lose that buttery shutter speed when you do the built-in stabilization, but then you still get that form factor that's so small, and it's kind of nice.
1: I don't think I've ever seen you guys use a GoPro with a gimbal.
2: No, we ha- you have never seen us do it. Okay. No. Yeah. Good. Because yeah. I would laugh
1: at you. That's yeah. so ridiculous.
2: <laughs> many moons ago.
1: I love
2: it. I love, it. <laughs> I like a, I love Paula. <laughs> <laughs> Paula having an opinion on this. I really love it. I love it,
1: <laughs> guys. That is not even <laughs> the point not of the GoPro. Cool. I, mean, I don't cool. have. I don't have zero knowledge, but I do know that gimbals no, are a huge pain in the ass. And every yeah, time you guys are using right. them, there's a pause in the activity yes, to fix the right. f-ing gimbal. Uh, you're right. <laughs>
2: This is why Uh, we need the new DJI Ronin 4D because it'll (laughs)
0: fix all of our problems. DJI, slide
2: into our DMs, DJI. You know you want it. Even Paula knows this is what we need. Not cool. (laughs) Oh, boy. Wow. That went off the rails. Okay. Uh, Next question here is from Peter. Hi, friends. I signed up for my first triathlon because of you. Olympic, aiming to stay below (laughs) 230. Very excited. One very practical question. Contact lenses. The internet told me that you shouldn't wear any for the swimming part. For bacteria, But my eyesight's pretty bad. I don't want to get prescription goggles just for the very few open water swim sessions, and it's probably stupid to swim open water half-blind and only put in lenses during T1. Any recommendations? Big fan and much love from Zurich. Peter.
1: So this is for just racing or for training as well.
2: So this is the this is the problem. My what I was going to say was, if it's just for the race, don't wear contact lenses. Like it's fine. You you're going to be with a million other people unless you're way out front in front of everyone, and you just follow the feet in front of you, and you'll be fine. Yeah,
1: but, but what about the bike and the run? Then you don't have contact. He then. he said
0: he's going to
2: put them in in T one.
1: Oh my gosh! Wow. Okay.
0: Well, here here goes Paula's LASIK co- commercial. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right
1: just let me know when I can start my LASIK commercial but okay. carry on Nick
0: okay
2: yeah we have to what's our, what's our deal with them one minute per uh, podcast episode we gotta get Palling 60 seconds free of LASIK eyes
0: back in 2012 that's our deal yeah in, twi- oh, wait, in 2012
1: really? at the 2012 Olympics I was like the poster girl for, for LASIK
0: <laughs> literally the poster girl I don't think
2: I knew this uh, maybe it I does not a I billboards all
1: over the country for LASIK cross-eyed cause I got LASIK and it was the best thing I've ever done not gonna wow. I'm not even lying
2: wow. Except for meeting Eric and me, of course.
1: Yeah, The best thing I ever did for my eyes.
2: <laughs> okay, great, great, great. No, still Eric is the best thing you ever did to your eyes. Look that's at him. True, He's that's He's beautiful. True.
1: <laughs> so just to rewind a little bit, before I had LASIK surgery, I would wear daily contact lenses. Yeah. Because then you just throw them out every night. And if they get a little bit of bacteria from the swimming pool or open water, it's okay because you're throwing them out every day. And that was necessary as a swimmer who was in chlorine for two hours. And um, they often actually popped out as well in a race just because of the roughness of the open water. And it was fine to lose them because they weren't like, you know, the month long type. But I did have LASIK surgery. It was quick, easy, painless. And I still, 11 years later, can see perfectly. So if that is wow. an option financially, or I, some people aren't a candidate for it, if you have like cataracts or some, you know, more complicated eye things. But if you have a very fairly simple, fixable thing, I would so recommend this to wow. anybody. Wow. Um, I can't stress that enough. <laughs> That's so why I said your, there's, about, a, I was there's, do a, there's a and I'm not commercial. I'm still paid by Lasix, but I... Uh, I still am a huge huge fan of it. If uh, Are we
2: are I mean is the issue with the bacteria that water from the open water source will get in there? I mean, if I your know. goggles fit well, that shouldn't be an issue,
1: right? Yeah, I would say to this person like putting contacts in in T1 is just sounds so stressful. I would just yeah. wear them in the swim and get some good fitting goggles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even if I have to go with like a big open water swim goggle exactly. like scuba mask style.
1: Yeah, some of the ones with a big gasket.
0: Really seals well, like whatever you gotta do. Yeah. I agree.
2: I agree. I'll 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 say anecdotally that the Roka ones, the like the I think they're called the X one, they are quite big and they look a little silly, but they feel very comfortable and they leave a lot of room yeah. for your eye.
1: And you, you never like would those. get water leaking in necessarily. No, I've never had it.
2: I've never had it with those. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just wear them for the swim bike run. And Yeah. I don't know. And we're not you, doctors, but if you
2: take them out and wash your eyes out after, is it is it really a concern? I don't know. Obviously, we're not doctors, but
1: well, you're you're soaking the lens every night in a solution, solution to like take right. the bacteria away. So I think even if you got a little bit of dirt in it or whatever in the swim, you'd be fine for that day. And then you yeah. wash them in the night.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we got two more questions here. We'll try to be brief since <laughs> we are we have been going. Um, First question is from Susan, and I think it's mostly for you, Eric. Actually, you've both done this race, so you could both answer. I've been competing in triathlon for a year now and ambitiously put my name in the Escape from Alcatraz list. Got picked for this year's race. Having checked out the race course today, what types of shoes would you recommend for the gravel, asphalt, sand ladder mix? Any tips you have for a 48-year-old woman on her first attempt would be stellar. Susan.
1: Good question. Put this one in for Eric, because I don't know.
0: What did I wear last year?
1: You're, I think you just wore your Adidas.
0: Yeah, I think I wore my Adidas super shoes, which to me feel pretty stable. The the one you know, thing that you can be concerned about is rolling an ankle because there are some switchbacks on like a golf cart, just not a golf cart, but like a walking asphalt path as you come back down and you just got to be really careful on those turns. So if you've got weak ankles, maybe don't go with a super shoe or like maybe lean more towards the the ones that have a little bit more anti-roll,
1: a e, not the Nikes, just
0: just not the Nikes. Yeah. Um, but I, the still predominant surface on that course is is pretty hard. Yeah. So I there's a lot of pavement. I wouldn't change your shoe choice just because of the you know like the mile out and back on the sand or going up the sand ladder. That's gonna like, suck no matter what.
1: I was gonna say any shoe you wear in sand is gonna feel terrible. Yeah. Whether it's a carbon shoe or a training shoe, it's not going to feel good. So don't change your decision based on that.
2: Also, I feel like the the faster you run, the more they have an effect on your race. And I think if you're planning on not running at like breakneck speeds, I feel like these differences in shoes probably make less and less of a difference. And just something that you're the most comfortable in in general is the most important thing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, the shoe that I might actually be the perfect shoe for this is the same shoe that I wore um for the the cross triathlon, and that's the Cloud Boom Echo Two. From oh, the-
1: I don't think it's I don't think it's the two. It's just the Cloud Boom Echo.
0: Okay. So, okay, At least it's not. It's it's the less high stack Cloud Boom Echo that On makes. And maybe there's a, a comparable model, you know, in other shoes and stuff. But to me, this shoe feels kind of like a half super shoe, where I, it's not a crazy high stack, but it definitely still has that like roll off the front rocker feeling. It's got a carbon plate. Uh, but it's got a little more tread than their like tippy top super shoe which
1: you can't even buy yet you can't get the Echo 3
0: just in case when this at the point of this time when this (laughs) podcast when this podcast comes out in two days (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) Right. so yeah I don't know I I think that's just like a really killer shoe for some uneven uh, you know unpredictable surfaces but it's still like I definitely noticed like a a three to four second you know speed increase per kilometer yeah it's
1: got the carbon effect
2: yeah right cool um, and then our last question here. Hi, Paul, Eric, Nick, and Flynn. I love listening to your show on my long commute to work. i qualified for 70.3 Worlds in Latte this year. Uh, as a reward, I'm considering buying a disc wheel. Do you find this makes any real improvement to your overall speed? The 70.3 Worlds isn't flat this year, but not totally hilly. Ironman website says 400 meters. In reality, it's more like 700 meters. Would it be worth it on what? a 700-meter elevation course? Thanks, all. On members. what
0: authority are we making that claim?
1: Yeah, I want to know. Is it four hundred or is it seven hundred? Do you live there? That's crazy. I think that's not like probably... it's four
0: hundred, but it's more like four twenty. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's like, like double. almost double. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. If anyone knows, let us know. I'm actually curious. Um, a disc wheel is always way faster.
0: I mean, I, I think the difference between like we'll say a four forty millimeter deep wheel and a and a disc wheel on the back is like. 30 seconds over an hour of like a very fast, you know, 40 kilometer bike ride. So you can decide if that's worth it to you, but it's always faster. The the one course that I don't use it on is Alcatraz, which is literally like six, four minute maximum effort hill repeats with like a 100 really sharp turns and I go with the 858 for that just for like a little bit lighter weight to climb and a little bit better acceleration out of corners but the disc would be faster aerodynamically
2: This reminds me of something yeah. that the tech said at the wind tunnel uh, this last time that we went where he was like discs aren't that much faster until you have a crosswind and then they are mm. quite a bit yeah. faster they're always faster but the crosswind like if it's going to be windy at all then it's like that sail effect and it you really Pushes fly you. Yeah. And the other you. thing
1: about the other uh that's a good point Nick and the the wind tunnel guy actually told us that so it's got to be right. Yeah. Um disc wheels are they have this bad reputation of being unstable and for example in St. Anthony's that we just raced it was a very windy day with lots of gusts and they banned disc wheels for the age group athletes. But I think that's a bit of a misconception because that, I think the disc wheel actually stabilizes you in the wind and it's your front wheel depth that has more of an impact on how yep. stable you're going mean, to feel. That makes sense, so, right? Yeah, if it's really windy, maybe picking a 454 versus an 858, but always the disc will be faster. And like Eric said, a 400 meter, a 700 meter elevation gain in a race, either way, the disc is a faster choice. And if you're going to invest in this as like a... A reward for qualifying, you'll use it at every other race you do in your life. So it's, a, I think, a good investment, even though I'll, they're expensive.
2: I'll say this. Speaking of that, as a budget-minded age grouper myself, which you can do, and we've talked about this before, is there's a lot of companies that make uh, disc Overs. covers, right? Yeah, so instead of yeah. purchasing a full carbon wheel, which is the best case scenario, you can buy the less beautiful and slightly less effective option, which is a cover that goes and it does cover your spokes, but it has a lot of the same effect if yeah, you're purely going after speed. Um, yeah. But there's no nothing. There's nothing like having a real disc. The sound of it, the feel of it, and and, yeah. and like the look of it. I just I've never been able to ride one myself, but it seems so 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 cool.
1: Eric, does it? You said it affects the acceleration. Does it affect the handling of the bike if it was a technical course?
0: Yeah, they're just they're just not quite as snappy. Okay, as okay. as a spoked wheel.
2: Do you feel like, um, like I'm trying to...
0: In my experience,
2: yeah. I'm trying to draw the comparison here. Like I've been riding my TT bike a lot because my road bike's been out of commission and descending, I can feel the difference between my TT bike and my road bike. Like my TT bike feels uh, uncomfortably stiff when I'm going around corners. It feels like it's like, it almost like wants to skip around these corners or my road bike feels like it kind of like flexes to it. I could imagine a disc wheel having the same property where like it doesn't really like change its shape at all so it doesn't flex mm. into the turn at all do you feel that or is that not something that happens or that you notice
0: um
1: well N- at my breakneck speeds yeah just that's the thing <laughs> there's just I can't really tell like
0: when have you ever been in a triathlon in a situation where you would be able to notice that yeah right right like there are like two courses well, in the ne- world at Nice Nice is, nice is that's exactly worlds? what I was thinking of
1: yeah, I remember checking my bike in the day before and I was the only person with the disc. And I was like, oh my God, did I make a huge mistake? Because I don't know if it's because of the weight or because of the way that it the very technical downhill. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it probably had more to do with the weight.
1: Maybe it was the be weight. Because a lot of pros in that.
0: Because that was a legitimately like a 40-minute climb. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just descend back down.
1: Yeah. But yeah.
0: still, I mean still I still think like if you crunched all the numbers. The disc probably would have been the faster choice, even with like just like, you know, there's like a total average speed for the whole race, but it's really hard to like break away from the way that it feels when you pick it up off the ground. Yeah, psychologically, if you know it's heavier. Go up this big climb. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Was that exhaustive enough? <laughs> yes, that is. We got
2: it. We, I think Michael could not ask for a better answer to that question. Um, okay, so that's it. That's all the questions. We spent most of that talking about the races, which I loved. Because I didn't. I haven't really gotten to talk to you guys that much since the race because it's been crazy traveling and stuff. But uh, was a, it's been a crazy couple months. I'm glad we're all back at home now for a little bit, back into our grind, our routine. For
1: five for days. six
0: days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: We actually decided, uh, well, Eric's racing next weekend in um, Bellingham, Oak Mountain, Extera. Alabama. I, Alabama. But it is Bellingham, right? He's flying to Bellingham.
0: Uh, Birmingham.
1: Birmingham. Birmingham.
0: That's the one. Close. Very close.
1: <laughs> and I'm racing Chattanooga 70.3. God oh, you knows are why doing I'm doing it. that. But
2: oh, boy. Here we go. Here we go. Are we all racing on the same day in three different places?
1: You're going to race for sure Nick?
2: And I'm 95% sure. I talked okay, to my right. coach today, Kyle, and he was like, "Yeah, just i I might just uh use it as a learning experience instead of as a go all in experience." Are you signed up? No, but you it's still open. Up?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we're all racing on the same day.
2: That would that'll be funny. <laughs> that'll be funny.
1: That's fun. Yeah, sorry what we missed last week. That was hectic, but um we're we're not, we're really happy to be back in a little routine here, so Good to chat with you guys. Keep sending your questions, and we'll get to more next week. And uh, have a good week of training.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.